immense pleasure to be involved in the Giants in orthopaedics and sports medicine presentation today. And it's a particular pleasure that I am interviewing Mr. David Dandy as one of the Giants. David's had a very profound effect on my career. Uh, over the years, we've met each other on a number of occasions. And despite the relatively small number of those meetings, the things that David has shown me, the things he's said, have really been inspirational to me. I first met him many years ago in 1989 at a course on arthroscopy at Stanmore at the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital. And I had the privilege of assisting Mr. Dandy in surgery, but also seeing him the day before with a patient, of course, in those days without an MRI scan. And he correctly diagnosed uh, a meniscal tear with a flap that he averted and watching him operate. I'd never seen that operation done as beautifully. And from that moment on, I decided I wanted to follow in, him into arthroscopic knee surgery. David, in my mind, really is the fo founding father of modern knee surgery in the UK. And I don't think that's an excessive compliment to give. Uh, I've come across his patients as I often do with other surgeons, but particularly with professional sportsmen, as so much of my practice involves that. And David's ex-patients, my current patients who are continuing to play professional footballers many years after David's surgery, are an incredible example of the quality of his work. And I can remember thinking to myself when seeing one of his ACL uh, footballers that I only wish I could get a knee as good as that. I hope over time, I can aspire to that. David got, managed to get players back to the top level. And that was the first time that anyone had ever achieved that following crucial ligament surgery. He's widely published. And in my formative years, I would read his publications with great interest as they were uh, very impressive and so different, if you like, to the current thinking of the time. And the results were so much better as well. One of my favorite papers is uh, reporting the results of ACL uh, reconstruction, uh, in, including a patient to be knocked over by a pig in Cambridgeshire, which was not something I was used to hearing. His teaching is absolutely second to none. And to listen and be present at a lecture from David Dandy was an absolute privilege. One of my favorite moments were occurred at an ACL course and a prior speaker was speaking just after a lunch break. It got lost when he went to the toilet. Poor old Mark in Glasgow couldn't find his way back to the lecture theatre. David was chairing the session. Time had gone by and said, right, what's the talk? So they put the slides up and David gave the talk without any preparation using Mark in Glasgow's slides. It was an absolute triumph. And as Markham said when he entered the room to the horror of seeing his own talk be given by somebody else, Oh, he said, carry on, you're better than I am. David's leadership has been incredible. He's been a very senior member of the BOA, being president, also president of the British Knee Society. And he was vice president of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. And he was one of the founding fathers of ISICOS. And so it really is understandably a great, great privilege for me to be allowed to give today's interview. And it's just wonderful for me to be able to say thank you in some way to David, who has popped up at moments in my career and had a profound influence. 
it's not just me, of course, he's been an inspiration to generations of young knee surgeons. And I really am grateful for this opportunity. So David, may I just say to you, thank you so much for your influence in my career. Sometimes you were present, sometimes I was in the audience, sometimes I was reading your articles, but it meant the world to me. So I've got a series of questions. We won't let him off the hook with simply getting compliments. So I want to start at the beginning. And David, I don't know whether you could explain to me why you chose to do medicine, why you chose to do orthopedics, and indeed, ultimately knee surgery. But if you could tell me about your training and how you ended up in this niche. Well, I, yes, I, always, I think I always wanted to do medicine, but uh, when I wanted to do surgery because my mother somehow managed to persuade a surgeon at the, the local private hospital in Woodford, a very small private hospital, to let me assist, her, assist him with operations when I was about 16. So I was allowed to scrub and I found myself holding a liver back while a gallbladder was removed when I was still in short trousers, which was an extraordinary experience. But from that moment, I knew I wanted to be a surgeon. Amazing. I mean, these days that wouldn't happen. Well, the theatre and the team. And <laughs> yeah. The, the, the act of operating as well. Yeah, incredible. There's certainly I can understand that, but it's it's amazing that age 16 you're allowed to do that, whereas nowadays the poor surgeon would be struck off and sent to jail. That's right. Amazing. And then when you went into medicine, were you attracted to orthopaedics straight away or did it happen later on? No, um, the, the, the orthopaedic epiphany came when I, one day when I was on, on my doing house jobs and I looked, I walked up and down the, the theatre corridor because the, the London in those days, they used to put the operating list up outside each theatre. And there were nine theatres and I had a spare little while, so I just read all the operating lists. And orthopaedics was one where I had never heard of a single operation that was being done. There was a joint <laughs> replacement, internal fixation of fractures, things that I had never heard of when I was a student. It was just clear this was a specialty that was going spaces. Yeah. It was a revolutionary specialty. So this was the, I suppose, the 60s, yes. And do you think I mean, timing, timing is everything? And I, it does strike me that your era of surgeons really took the speciality from quite a low level to an extremely high one. And it must have been an incredibly exciting period, what with arthroscopic surgery on one hand and then arthroplasty on the other side. Yes, it was. It was a fairly dull subject beforehand. It was mostly ordering braces from, from the from the brain, from the back to the brace fitter and <laughs> for some reason we got landed with backache it was considered that orthopedic surgeons were the ones to treat backache there's yeah, a that's story about, about john Sharn, which may or may not be true where he walked into the outpatient waiting room and said all those with backache go home because i can't do anything about it <laughs> whether it's true or not i don't know but it was a bit like that yeah so you obviously got into orthopedics and then what attracted you to the knee surgery side? Was that by good luck or did you plan it? Well, I, I got a, I was lucky enough to get a post at the Toronto General as a senior fellow just after near, near the end of my training. And uh, I, when, I, when I arrived in Toronto, I found I was working for two people I'd vaguely heard of, a chap called Jackson yeah. and another one called McIntosh. And I was fairly disappointed because I wanted to do real orthopedics back surgery and, um, and, hip and joint replacement. 
But these two, they really revolutionized my, my, my career and life, rather as you described. They're amazing. They were long, very different characters as well. How long were you there? Just a year. Very good. And at that time, was Macintosh doing the tenodesis procedure? Yes, he was. Amazing. He was a, he was a slightly eccentric character, Mac. He, he never really bothered writing things up. And he, was, he, he didn't really enjoy people prying into, his, into what he did. Fantastic. One day I said, do you mind if I go come on a ward round with you? Sure, he says, come on a ward round. I'll be on such, such and such a ward at such and such a time. Of course, he wasn't there. <laughs> next time I did catch him up, I went, went into the room with him. And he said, just look at this patient's knee while I, while I move next door. He'd gone, disappeared, <laughs> I moved. But he would, I wonder what he'd think about his, his resurgence with the interest in tenodesis and so forth that's happened in the last 10 years. I mean, he'd probably find that quite amusing, probably. Yes, but the, the great thing about learning from, Macin, from Dave McIntosh was that he used to do a sports injuries clinic at, the, at Haas House in Toronto, which is University Sports Centre. So I, I used to do it after hours, so I'd go along if you watch a football match and see the injury occurring, the patient yeah. would brought into the um, first aid centre. I would then get a chance to examine it before anybody else. And then Mac would come along about an hour later and do it properly. <laughs> he, I, I, it took me about six months before I could predict what he was going to find. It really okay. was extremely difficult to examine an acutely injured knee first time. No, it's incredible training, really. And I was, I was because of our recent work on the medial side of the, the knee, I was looking at Slocum and Larson's paper from the 60s, and they almost just about worked it out, actually. It's, it's fascinating. And one, one of these un, less useful consequences of MRI scanning is surgeons have lost the skills to examine a knee properly because they just go to the scan. And it's such a pity because it's so often the MRI needs the addition of a exact proper examination I'm, I'm sure you'd agree um in terms of your practice back in the uk when you started back um did you go straight into knee surgery or did you do general orthopedic surgery like a lot of people did in those times i, I did general orthopedic surgery. i came i went to back to great ormond street and to do yeah. children's orthopedics when i get, when i left toronto so my list included club feet yeah neonatal hips yeah. Spinal surgery, the full came out. Wow. And I, I, I didn't become a knee surgeon until I suppose I'd been there two years and then I had a, a slightly unfortunate incident with a, with a university footballer. Um, the background to that is that uh, I've been trying to develop arthroscopic menisectomy on the quiet in a little country hospital, which was part of my appointment. Yeah. And I was just about getting it sorted out when my senior colleague asked me to look after, look at a patient in the university rugby team. Yeah. And in those days, the Oxford and Cambridge rugby team, rugby match was a national event. Indeed, indeed. And this, anyway, the long short of it was this patient had a nice easy bucket handle chair, which I removed. And I thought it was all going well until about 10 days later when I got a call from News at 10, which was the biggest news channel of the day. Saying this chat would be shown on news at 10 running up and down a football field. Because of what I didn't know, and neither did my senior colleague, was that this chap's father 
was a sports reporter for ITN. <laughs> so you can imagine the impact that had. Well, you'd think that was one hell of an advert, but I suspect not everybody thought it was good, did they? Well, publishing you know, on the television instead of a journal is bad news, isn't it? it well, it certainly, I remember when I first qualified, anybody who had any exposure to the media was in trouble with the General Medical Council straight away. Exactly. But, uh, but uh, you got over that, presumably. Well, the only answer was to get some friends. Bob Jackson had taught me that if you, if you, there are two ways of handling opposition. One of them is to oppose it, and the other is to make friends of the friends of the opponents. Very so wise. it seemed to me the, the reasonable thing to do in these circumstances was to teach everyone, teach my socks off, and get some friends. Yeah. So books, courses. Yeah. Etc. And um, that, that in that way, I think I got enough allies to get away with it. And also, people eventually realise that you're not perhaps the person they'd accused you of being at the beginning. It's a Surgery can be quite a lonely place sometimes, I think. <laughs> Particularly if you st stick your head up and do things that perhaps are less uh, less commonly done. But um, we have to progress all the time. And once you got the arthroscopic work going, when would you say you, you got these arthroscopic service up and running properly? When would that have been? Probably, I suppose. Mid seventies, late seventies. Yeah, yeah. The the uh, the first publication was was around in seventy eight. Yeah. So it, it got running very quickly, very well after that. Yeah. But of course right. that was before the the, the ACL came and interfered. Yeah. And that that was in the eighties. And obviously one of the things I remember seeing my first ACL, and it involved not only a patella tendon graft but a lateral tenodesis and. The surgeon concern had been instructed by your good self and that initially was the way it was done and then there was a quite a long period where surgeons felt it wasn't necessary to add a tenodesis so how do you feel that people like myself and a few others have done the research and now a lot of people it's almost commonplace that a tenodesis or certainly something laterally is performed almost routinely um, in different pe certain people's practices presumably it must make you smile a little well, yes, when I came back, of course, I did exactly as Dave McIntosh did with the teenagers, which incidentally included putting the patient in a cast from it with the knee and with the, the knee flexed to 90 degrees and the, and yeah. the, the foot externally rotated. So it's quite a, quite a business. In fact, I've got a patient who's Canadian and aged 18, David McIntosh, did his surgery and he gave, he's given me a photograph, which is fantastic for a number of reasons. One, he, the patient concerned had 70s hair down to his shoulders but also he had his knee at 90 degrees in a cast with a sling that went over the shoulder. But he'd also installed a beer, right. a beer bottle opener on the front of his cast so he could open a bottle of beer. Anyway. I had one, I had one, one patient who was of a somewhat rustic character from the, from the Fens, who came in at two weeks for his follow-up without the cast on. <laughs> and I asked him how, what had happened to the cast. He said he took it off with tin snips. <laughs> But that patient did far better than any of the others. He, he mobilised quickly. He was back at work on a building site in about six weeks. Yeah. Quite extraordinary. So, so moving on from the ACL surgery, what, what do you think was the biggest step forward with ACL surgery? Was it intra-articular work or rehabilitation or what sort of thing, or doing it arthroscopically? Well, I, let me sit, sit, take a slightly different tech. I've never, ever done a sing, an isolated ACL 
reconstruction. Every, every single one has had a, a, a tenodesis too. Yeah. The reason for that is that the tenodesis, when, when I followed them out, worked very well for about 18 months. Yeah. Not much longer than 18 months, mark you, but it did, did work for 18 months. And a lot of patients, um, that's enough. They, they've given up a lot of sport for 18 months, or they, they've just grown out of it. Um, so that was, that, that was often enough to get them over the, the critical period. Yeah. Before they were taken out of retirement. That doesn't mean they couldn't do it. No. But it just, they they um, chose not to. So I never did a single isolated one because I would sit, sit, look at this little scrap of tissue sitting in a in saline in a bowl and ask myself, is this really going to hold a rugby forward or an American linebacker together in, 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 a, big, in a major crash? And the answer is it, it simply can't. The, the, the tissue is not, doesn't have the same mechanical properties once it's been harvested. And I, didn't, I just could not understand how this tissue, and still can't understand how this piece of tissue can reproduce accurately the function yeah. of the AC. Yeah. So I did all with, all with the synodesis as well. Uh, it was passed down to me, somebody you taught said that you had said to him, you know, the tenodesis is there to protect the ACL while it's healing, but also when they get back on the pitch, it may give them something extra to control the rotation. Now, in terms of your uh, leadership roles, which, you know, it is in very, very impressive, but obviously this is an Issacos-based uh, event today. You were there at the beginning with Issacos, and what was it that... Uh, made you as a group found Issacos? Again, it was, it was a self-preservation thing. The early arthroscopists were rem remarkable people. They, 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 were, they were thought to be eccentrics and, and possibly even dangerous eccentrics. <laughs> they, 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 told they, they would meet rarely because there were so few of them. And they, they were slightly, all slightly paranoid. So they, they, um, when they, when they actually got going, eventually, under Bob Jackson's influence and that of a few others, and started producing papers showing that arthroscopy did influence the outcome, uh, and above all, that it showed the um, the original clinical diagnosis was wrong in about thirty percent of cases. Amazing. The, the the reaction from the established knee surgeons, the traditional knee surgeons, was not welcoming. Let's put it that way. <laughs> no one likes to know that. You know, they're, they're, they're respected, they're heads of their profession, they've large practice based on removing menisci. Yeah. Uh, open, and they did not welcome arthroscopy. But they, in fairness to them, it didn't take long for them to be, to be swung over. Yeah. Uh, and we um, eventually combined the two, or, or strictly speaking, we dissolved the two, both of them. And so I had another organisation which included sports medicine as well. Yeah. And obviously that's, you know, why we're here today. So I think you must be very proud of that achievement. I mean, if you're not, you should be, because getting people to work together and go forward is not always easy, but that's, a, I mean, a tremendous well, success. Ken Dehaven must be mentioned. He and I, he was, was in the International Society of the Knee and he, if you like, infiltrated the ISK and I infiltrated, infiltrated the IA. We, we realised somewhere, I suppose, the early 80s that uh, these, these two techniques just had to go together. 
Yeah. You couldn't have an us and them situation forever. So sooner or later they would combine. But yeah. it took about 12 years. And obviously it's become, it's important to be unified globally for political reasons, to produce the statements that we need to state, and also to protect our interests, but um, also educationally, it's of immense importance. And one of the things that I mentioned already was your ability to convey information in a, in a memorable way, in a pleasurable way. Did, did you ever get formal uh, teaching as to how to present at lectures, or did it just come naturally to you? Um, I first started lecturing when I was a junior doctor. I, I lectured to Red Cross classes and uh, first aid classes in East End, East End when I was at the London. Yeah. And they were not always the most um, enthusiastic groups. <laughs> Some of them actually um, were for, obliged to attend either by their employers yeah. or, or, or other parties. So uh, I did learn from that to keep things simple and above all, never let your audience get bored. Yeah. No, it's, it's never great seeing the eyes close and the head nod, is it? No, particularly in the front row. Uh, indeed. Now, obviously there is more to life than work. And one of the things I struggle with terribly, it's, it's obviously I'm blessed to be very busy and I know you'd have been exactly the same or even busier, I'm sure. But it's being able to create time for your family and life outside work. Um, did you... Did you have an endless struggle with that? And I suspect most people just muddle through and they never get it quite right, but they sort of end up with a compromise. Or were you able to deal with that? Didn't do it very well, to be honest. <laughs> That's very reassuring. Very understanding family. Yeah, me too. Uh, and the other thing, with the international lecturing, I was often able to take my wife and children with me. Yeah. We used to, to go to some quite exotic places. Yeah. The best of all was, was the, U, the UCLA courses in, in Hawaii. <laughs> which happened sadly. every year for about nine or ten years. Nine, about nine or ten years. <laughs> well, sadly, things change. There's about ten hours time difference. And you're there yeah. for ten days, and you, by which time you're adapted and you come back again, you've got jet lag for about a month. Yeah. But it, it, there were compensations. Absolutely. It's very reassuring to hear that you struggled with controlling work-life balance, as I certainly haven't worked it out yet, and I do rely on a very, very understanding wife, and I hope children. But there are, I always point out the upsides. They've seen a lot of high-level sport, and we've had opportunities to travel, as you, as you mentioned. Um, you've got this wretched illness now with uh, Parkinson's, so... That's probably very frustrating and limiting, I would imagine. But how do you keep yourself busy these days? Not sure I do. No. It's difficult, isn't it? Yeah, it's not fair. Um, it's very I, frustrating. Oh, just it's a misery, isn't it? It's just not fair. And in terms of um, your hobbies before uh, you've retired, did you... Do anything outside work or did you just devote yourself really to the family and work? So there's usually very little time. I didn't do very much except work and family, to be honest. Yeah, exactly. No, I think you can't beat it. Just in closing, obviously, firstly, I must thank you very much indeed for your time. And it's so good of you to come on. But do you have any 
anything else you'd like to say or um, anybody else you'd like to mention? No, except I, I think the, the people who really interest me were objects and who made a major point of making friends rather than enemies. <laughs> and, and David McIntosh, who got on and did things rather than just wait for somebody to prove that it was possible. Yeah, yeah. It, it, no, it's funny it's, how that happens. I'm just doing, doing, doing something way out on left field, as the, as the Americans would describe it. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes it, things work out and you don't always know why it works, but it, it can certainly do that. I found that as well. Well, that's exactly <laughs> right, the, the, yeah. particularly with the pivot shift phenomenon. Yeah, and I, mean, I think people really do not understand that, that is more than just a, a manifestation of the anterior draw sign. Where the two bones actually dislocate. Yeah. You put your, put your weight on the knee and turn. That is crucial. Yeah. And I, th I think we've lost our way a little bit in terms of previous quadrants sort of pit diagrams you'd have with anterolateral, anteromedial, postlateral, postmedial. You know, it's a combination of various injuries at the centre of the joint with the cruciates and also the periphery with the collateral ligament complexes, menisci, etc. And this morning I've seen a, a woman who's got a very deficient medial meniscus whose pivot shift is actually bigger with external rotation. And it's because you, she's got anteromedial rotation as well. Uh, so it, we, sadly, we are rediscovering the wheel, but at least we are going back to basics again, I think. David, it's been... Sorry. The, the pivot shift is a phrase, was a phrase of, devised by David McIntosh because he said, the patients say, when I when I pivot Dr. McIntosh, I feel my bones shift. Yeah. It was yeah. nothing to do with axes of rotation at all. No, no, exactly. It's, it's how that subluxation occurs. David, just finally, I'd just like to say what a pleasure it's been to be with you this afternoon. And uh, I'm re really grateful to you for this. Thank you very Thank you much. Some, some, some very friendly questions. <laughs> well... I'm not sure about that, but it's been a pleasure. And as I mentioned previously to you, I'm so grateful to you. You've touched my career and my development in ways you won't realise, but it's been fantastic. <laughs>